This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. The collaboration between architect and interior designer is crucial to the success of so many projects. At its best, the connection can push both to new heights, but it can also be fraught. Creative differences, miscommunications, budget disputes, and client conflicts can all complicate this intense working relationship. I have with me today a top architect and a designer who often collaborate and who have also happened to be married. So how much more freighted is the relationship when collaborators bring their work home together? New York-based designer Katie Ritter is known for her updated traditional rooms full of vivid, saturated colors, sprightly patterns, fanciful detailing, and most importantly, comfort and charm. Her work has been featured in virtually every major design magazine, and she has been included on both House Beautiful and Elle Decor's list of the top designers in the country. She's an avid gardener and also designs collections of fabrics, wallpapers, and rugs. Katie published her first book, Rooms, in 2011, and a follow-up, More Rooms, came out two years ago. In between, she and her husband co-wrote A House in the Country, documenting the design and construction of their own country house and garden in Millbrook, New York. Welcome, Katie. Thank you, Michael. After receiving his master's degree in architecture from Columbia, her husband, Peter Penoyer, worked for Robert A.M. Stern before opening his own firm. He has since been recognized as one of America's top traditional architects and is included on the AD100 list. His 50-person firm has created new houses and sensitive renovations in styles ranging from Georgian and colonial revival to Czech cubism and arts and crafts. He has also managed to find time to co-author five books on American architectural history. When not working with his wife, he collaborates with many of today's top interior designers, including David Kleinberg, Eve Robinson, Stephen Gambrell, Matthew Patrick Smythe, and Sean Henderson, to name a few. Hello, Peter. Hey there, Michael. Thanks for having us. It's going to be fun. Now, I just want to make it clear for our listeners, you guys are married, but you're not a team. You each have your own very successful firms. And you work with lots of others. I was just saying, Peter, you've worked with lots of designers. I know, Katie, you've worked with all sorts of architects as well. So, uh, but I just want to get a sense of how you two met. Did you meet on the job, so to speak? And what it's like to work together. So, Katie, how did you first come to meet No Peter? Well, at the time, it was 1988, and I was working under Anna Winter at House and Garden Magazine, and she said to me, I want you to do a story on young people who have inherited furniture from their families, and here is a list of people that I want you to go interview, and Peter was on the list. So, so much of as life is attributed to Anna Winter. Yes. <laughs> including in my life as well. So that's funny. Right. Terrific. So then what happened? So then I went and met Peter in his office at the time. It was in the Mark Hotel. And I was thinking of going out on my own and having my own business and decorating. I'd gotten so much experience at House and Garden. And while talking to him, Peter said, you know, why don't you come work for me and I'll open a decorating department? And 
I was I was seriously thinking about doing that, and the stock market crash happened. I remember it well. It was, do you remember <laughs> that? And I thought, you know what? I think I need to work for a big corporation. So I said to Peter, you know, I'm not going to come work for you. And he said, okay, great. How about dinner? <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I love that. Right, right. So, Peter, you didn't miss a, miss an opportunity there. Right. And then right. four months later, we were engaged. That yeah, is so yeah. great. But, Peter, you started your own firm fairly early. You were young when you started your firm. Yes, probably. I probably started it earlier than I should have. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> I had friends who seemed to be able to land very interesting projects and they needed help doing it. And, you know, there were, it was wild. People were hiring us to do projects. Essentially, when we were in our last year at school, we worked on the Mark Hotel. We moved into the hotel, which is fantastic, as we were renovating floor by floor. And we worked for, we did Keith Haring's Pop Shop downtown and loft projects. You know, nothing uh, major construction, not new construction, but it was, it was fun. Right. Lots of renovations. Yeah. Yeah. And it was also at a time that I think there was a beginning to be a shift in design and traditional architecture and design, I think, was becoming more popular again after sort of the minimalism of the 70s and early 80s and all of that. Do you think that, I mean, you worked with Robert Bob Stern, so clearly he's such a classicist. Do you think that there was people turned to you because they couldn't get Bob and, you know, his, his firm, so that was sort of an advantage to you? No, I think, it, I mean, coming out of Columbia, we were all immersed in postmodernism then, which was a necessary step in the path back to architecture. Right. We all created some really, truly embarrassing right. <laughs> designs, but, you know, because I'm not a fan of postmodernism, but we all had to do that, but it was very perfunctory and kind of simple. So we all had to learn together. Every, every firm did, you know, how to do things and look at history and look at buildings and admire them and get our, our heads into that space. Yeah, because I think there was sort of a, I think a prejudice against classical architecture at the time. You know, postmodernism sort of took the elements and made, tried to make fun with them and to do a new way. But it was like almost as if these tools, these elements of architecture were used up and not valid anymore. So you had to play with them in a way as opposed to respecting them. Right, yeah. And Katie, in terms of design at that time, what were you hoping to achieve with your firm? Well, so I went on to then open a store. We got married. I opened a store. Oh, you did retail first. I didn't realize I did retail. That. Yes, I did. I had a, we had gone to Istanbul on vacation for a week after we got engaged. And, and instead of working for Peter, I worked for House Beautiful Magazine under Peggy Kennedy. And I opened my store and I had it for about six years. And that's really how it started. It was just a culmination of all these different experiences I had had at House and Garden and House Beautiful. House Beautiful was very hands-on. And House and Garden, it was, you know, seeing Mark Hampton work. And at House Beautiful, it was stamped till midnight, emptying a house and filling it back up with Baker furniture. So it was really kind of organic start to the design business. And I, I just started, you know, one client at a time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what was the prevailing mode at that time in terms of design? Well, you're right. It's funny you say the 80s and classicism. And I remember, you know, the women had the very large hairdos and the padded <laughs> shoulders. And Mario Boada was really the star of the mm -hmm, 80s. And mm -hmm. it was glazed chintz and padded walls 
and big very, bows on the over the frames of yes. dog paintings. Yes, I remember yeah, well. Yeah. 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 So was it your idea that you would like take that look and make it appropriate for a younger generation? Because you were young at the time. Yes, I was. I was 28, 29 mm-hmm. when I started my business. I, you know, I, I really didn't have any fear because I even though I didn't have an education in decorating, I had seen so much of what happens behind the scenes. And yes, it's true. My clients back then were all young. They were, you know, they were my age or younger. And so it was, it was pretty easy to convince them to use color and pattern because it was usually their first projects. Mm-hmm. So Peter, you had mentioned that I, as a way to entice Katie, you said, I'm going to open a decorating division of my firm. But as I recall, there was really kind of a, uh, on the part of architects, I think there was kind of a bit of looking down on decorating, you know, architecture was supposed to be pure and really strong. And the decorators, the tradition was that decorators spent the money that really should go into architecture. And so did you see it as a prejudice then? Did you encounter that from other architects? that people look down on decorators? No, no, I mean, what I saw was that modernism and the decades of modernism has essentially pulled away any ability for architects to do interior architecture even. That was sort of off the table. And of course, when I was at Columbia, architects were interested in a very narrow palette of furniture, most of which was very interesting to look at and incredibly uncomfortable. Right. I mean, like the, you know, the lone Le Corbusier chaise or right. the, I had these chairs that I thought were just the most exciting thing on my little table in my first apartment, which were the Fleeter Mouse chairs by Hoffman. They were completely uncomfortable. And I had an, <laughs> yes. an embarrassing dinner when a couple came over and one of them, I won't say who couldn't fit, you know, because they were so small. So, tiny, so we were willing to put up with, you know, discomfort in the name of some principle. I couldn't figure out what the principle was. (laughs) Right, right. But it was like, you couldn't be into comfort or pretty. Pretty was kind of like, in the art world too, pretty was looked down on. You know, art art is not pretty was the slogan that went around the time. Exactly. Except the people in the preservation world interested in old buildings and the curatorial worlds and the museum worlds. And those were were my friends. And so that was another track um, in the story. Now, do you guys remember what was the first project you worked on together? I'm curious how that came about. It was Oakley Farm. And actually, there were two projects. One couple had, a, in Hunt Country in, in Upperville, Virginia, had a house that was inherited from his grandmother and a house in San Francisco overlooking the Golden Gate Bridge. We had them together at the same time. And we were going back and forth. We just were talking about this because I'm reading the Bunny Mellon book and Mm -hmm. Peter was invited to lunch with Bunny and Madison Cox because Madison Cox was the garden designer. And and I was really sorry that I missed that lunch. So we were just talking about and looking at that house in Upperville. It was a young couple and they had hired us. It was a, a college roommate of my sister's. And so we were hired for two really important houses at the same time. And I mean, for me, it was working with Peter was just a dream. I mean, Peter really has been my mentor. Mm -hmm. I've learned so much from Peter. And so it was just, it was easy and exhilarating working on these two projects because the couple had no boundaries, no design boundaries, and they put their trust in us. 
We had so much fun. I mean, we we were at the San Francisco Antique Fair, and Katie spotted this beautiful gilded branch. It was some decorative object that must have been on a pelmet in yeah, England, it was a pelmet. you know, the 18th century. And I said, well, I know someone who can carve another one. Let's put those in the house. And there were small things like that. We found, we went to London and, and found a fragment of an Italian ceiling from the estate of a great antique dealer from Turin and brought it back to the San Francisco house and had someone, we designed sort of a framework for it. And now it's part of a ceiling in that house and you can't tell what the original fragment is and what the new part is. So it had all of these wonderful projects within the project. And were either one of you apprehensive at all? Because I mean, it is a little intense to be working together, bringing the issues home. Or was it just like, over dinner, you say, you know, what if I, we did this? Or what, it was just natural? or Because yeah, I could see it could put a strain on a, on a marriage, you know? It, you know, people often ask us that. It never, ever, ever put a strain on a relationship. Um, because I always look to Peter for advice, honestly. And it was just very freeing work, working with Peter because I, I trusted him 100%. And we had, you know, all the weekends to work on it together. We worked around the clock on this on these projects, and it was just a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. So I also think the secret to it, actually, Katie, was that we are so different. I mean, the way we look at things is so completely different. Yeah. That you know, for instance, in our own house, that there's no way on earth I would have thought of having purple, glossy Moroccan tile (laughs) (laughs) at the entrance to our house or this pink tea paper. So all these things you do are, they're just not in my head. And so I think that's why it's so much fun. Well, mutual respect is so important. And and I I know what you're saying, Peter, because one of the things that impressed me about your work is it has such a stylistic range. Like I, I'm recently on your Instagram account, you have the most spare New England house. It's so beautiful, but so spare. And it's like not a project that I would think, oh, Katie should have been involved with this because it's not really in right. your wheelhouse there, Katie, you know, but yeah. you have that range. But Katie, does it? do you ever get jealous when you like, Peter's working on a project with another designer and you think, damn, I wish I... I, I could be involved in this project? Yes, all <laughs> the time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the pillow talk includes stories about, well, other architects and other designers. We won't yes. tell you who they are. Well, you don't have to name names, but no. I, that's one of the things I want to ask you about. It's like, because I'm sure it must be frustrating knowing that you two work together so well, and you're saying that's not never been a strain, but I'm sure working with other designers or other architects, Katie, you know, and builders, that there must be frustration. So just to get an idea from each one of you, Katie, why don't we start with you? Like, what are some of the big frustrations when you're working with designers, with the architects rather, and builders, that they don't understand how designers work and that really drive you crazy? Because I, I think the communication between architect and designer is so crucial. And you guys clearly have that down and you have that respect for each other. But what are some of the occasions where that's not happened? Well, I feel like now it's all worked out because I work with such a high level of, of architects right. now. It's a, you know, it's a true collaboration in terms of what the interior looks like. And they ask my opinions and, and I look to them for advice too. But I think in, when I first started out working for architects, they didn't always think about what the inside was going to look like with the lighting 
and holistically about the whole project. I think they were more focused on what they were doing. And then I would come in after. And I don't think that's the right approach to a successful project. I think you have to have the decorator on board from the get-go. But I feel like that hasn't happened in a long time. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm always talking to the architects that I'm working with, and they know what I'm doing, and we share our schemes with them so they can see. Because oftentimes, I imagine, architects have no idea that the living room is going to be, you know, that the floor is going to be purple mosaic tiles, or the living room is going to be pink tea paper. They have no idea. So I, I try to always show architects what it is that that we're up to. And when we did an episode with Gil Schaefer and David Netto, they were both saying that they think it's really crucial that the architect and designer be involved from the beginning. And I'm glad to hear that 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 is happening more so, or maybe it's just you're working with better architects, Katie. But Peter, do you think that there's a a willingness now? Because, you know, the, the traditional view of architects, you know, all the way back to Frank Lloyd Wright and even before is that, you know, architects are control freaks. They want to do everything down to the doorknobs, you know, candlestick holders. They want to design the total space. So is there more willingness to work with designers among architects now and more respect for that, do you think? I mean, I, I think it has to do with the style of the architecture. I think there's some some very minimalist, beautiful architecture that is kind of resistant to a lot of furniture, things we love, curtains, soft upholstery, all that. You know, there is that kind of architecture that is exquisite, but is less mutable. Um, but I do think architects are learning more about detailing. And I think that we're making as a profession fewer mistakes that make it impossible for the interior team to do their work. I mean, you have to make a bedroom with the appropriate bed wall, enough room for the side tables. You cannot have, you know, you learn all these things early, early on. You can have projecting radiator cabinets and that ruin then you know then i tell people in the office this is like 20 years ago do you do you understand that the curtains are cost more than a five couture dresses and you can't just have a radiator sticking in the middle of it so all the curtains bow out no i mean you you have to be very aware of your mistakes or possible mistakes as an architect and just try to make what they do look beautiful on the other hand you also have to be i think incredibly open to ideas and not disengage yourself from the design process. If you're asked to come and sort of think the designer is thinking, someone else, I prefer to see it as an opportunity to learn and to expand my palette, right? As opposed to feeling like I have to be defensive. And that's also a huge help in getting along. Years ago, I would have experiences where I felt like it was a little bit of a battle. And I think in hindsight, I probably, it was just one particular project, probably just didn't understand what that person was trying to achieve. Right. And and it does help to start early. It helps to have a shared vision. Generally, it goes well in my office because we have thousands of books and we have books that no one's seen. I mean, they're kind of obscure. So if someone mentions, a designer mentions some idea or furniture, we can usually pull out something that's that gets them deeper into that. And do you think clients, Katie, I'd love to know from you, do you think your clients understand the, the different roles of, uh, that a designer and an architect, and then also a landscape designer, what they do and what they bring to the table. And because I know that some architects will complain that the client will go to the designer or they'll go to the architect and not the designer, depending on who they're more comfortable with. Have you noticed that clients are more understanding of these roles and more sophisticated about how things work? I do. I, I'm just thinking of the projects I'm working on right now. There's such an open line of communication between all of us, not the landscape architect, I would say, mm-hmm. 
but definitely the architect. And I think the clients realize it's in their best interest to have us in communication with the architect so we can solve little problems that, that I may know of from an interior perspective that the architect isn't thinking about. Right. But nothing's changed. I mean, honestly, my books are writing about Delano and Aldrich and their first house for the Rockefellers, the Kikit house. I mean, it was a complete, you know, disaster. And, you know, <laughs> that's reassuring. <laughs> no, 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 because they were, they were the interiors and, and no, but they tore it down. When the paint was drying and furniture was being delivered, they actually started over and they added even more designers. So there's like nothing has changed. It's possible to dig your heels in and make things difficult. We don't do that. Mm-hmm. I prefer to learn from people. Um, yeah. and, and it's, it's great to have a range of designers we work with. Hi, everybody, and thanks for listening to the Cherish podcast. I'm Anna Brockway, president and co-founder of Cherish. We're taking a quick break to fill you in on some really exciting news. Cherish is launching our first ever in-person pop-up, the Cherish Art Gallery at none other than the famed Bergdorf Goodman. Open now through April, our gallery showcases 300 gorgeous pieces by our most beloved artists. If you find yourself in New York, I do hope you'll drop by. It's fantastic. And stay tuned for more announcements and even more offerings by visiting Cherish.com. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H.com. Cherish.com. And now back to the show. Katie, have you ever had a conflict with an architect that it's just like couldn't be resolved? I mean... Um, yes. Oh, God. I'm, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm sure. <laughs> I have a short memory span, um, and I and I try to think positively. So, well, exactly. You want to remember the good times, <laughs> right? I know. I rem- I remember the kitchen cabinet you showed me with the beam going right through the f- the door, but we won't say who did that. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Because I think sometimes our and listen, I, I'm a frustrated architect, Peter. I was planning of when in college I wanted to become an architect, and then I realized I really didn't have the talent. You know, I realized early on. I think some architects don't realize that so early on. <laughs> um, but you know, I'm saying this as a, an architecture lover. I do think that there are architects who can be very demanding and stubborn about their their vision, shall we say, and don't understand how spaces are used on a day-to-day basis. Do you think that that's less so? Clearly, your firm is the exception. And like you said, you love to collaborate and learn from uh, from designers and other people. You know, it doesn't have to be a designer that you learn from. We all learn from so many people. But do you think this image of the, you know, the fountainhead, the architect is, you know, this genius that <laughs> has to be, you know, worshipped, the Frank Lloyd Wright figure, do you think that that's less so in the, indis- in the profession I mean, now? I, I think once you've been out of school for five years, you realize that none of us are geniuses, <laughs> literally none of us. <laughs> well, but, not but, everybody <laughs> does realize that, you know. But but there are some people who, are, who you know, who were told that in school, the point of it in architecture school is to bring out your inner genius and they never get over it. So mm-hmm. that's, that's really tiresome. However, being single-minded and iconoclastic can lead you to do things that are singular, you know, fantastic. Like, you know, no, no one told Frank Gehry that he had to, I mean, I'm, some of his buildings are better than others, but he essentially burst out and showed right. how to be contemporary architect and build a monument that isn't just part of the same context. So, you know, right. it takes, it takes all kinds, but most of us, 
the firms that I know, my friends, and you know who they all are, including Gil and Ferguson Chamamian and people over at Stern's office and John Murray, these are all firms that are working with designers and working in a very personal way with the way people live, thinking about houses and thinking about what a living room should be like and what you do when you sit next to the fire. I mean, all these things, it is about how the house makes you feel. And that does tend to get through the barriers between the designer and the architect. But you do see some incredibly stubborn people and um, you know, we've had our battles. Um, but and I have to say also, can I just, Katie is sometimes an advocate, which is really sweet for the architects on her projects where she'll show me something and I'll encourage her to help the architect convince the client, yes, it's really worth adding that detail. Right. You know? mm-hmm. right. And, and so if I'm operating behind the scenes and Katie usually is trying to support the best work the architect does, mm-hmm. you know, which is fun, although it's totally behind the scenes. I, you know, I don't think Katie wants her architects to know that I'm secretly at night looking at their drawings, right? <laughs> you're not. Peter, you're not. No, 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 I know. I know. I know. Not I don't now, anymore. Not. No, not now. That was years ago. Right. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I never thought of that as sort of subterfuge. The Mary, you know, the Mary you could show them, what do you think here and go back. Um, I'm sure that has happened, not with you guys, but with some other married collaborators. But Katie, I wanted to ask you, speaking of that, most of your design work is in fairly traditional, shall we say, houses with living rooms, bedrooms, roofs, dormers, whatever. But have you ever been approached about doing a project in a in a more extreme architectural thing like a Zaha Hadid? You know, now that more developers are working with, shall we say, avant-garde architects, has that ever, have you ever been approach to do a project like that? And have you ever done one or? Um, yes, not in a while. I've done mm-hmm. some lofts downtown and in Tribeca. And I I don't get asked very often to do that because in that type of a space, there's no place to stop and start paint. Like there are no moldings. Mm-hmm. Everything really should be white. Mm-hmm. And not a lot of people are hiring me to do white, white room. houses, rooms. So I, I have though before, but it's it's been a while. Yeah. I, well, you know, and I think that one of the things, because also even in terms of developer buildings in, in New York, certainly, I think there's been more of a shift towards more traditional rooms and things. And I think, you know, Bob Stern had a huge impact with, on that with his buildings that have become, you know, the highest per square foot dollar amount for any apartments. People love that. Yes. Tradi- I think there's been a shift away from those Zaha Hadid kind of buildings that are so striking on the skyline, but maybe to live in them isn't quite as good. So, Peter, have you been brought into some of those? Because the other thing is just because it's a traditional building doesn't necessarily mean it's always that successful either. Have you ever been brought in to like work on a, say, a new development, but that really there were changes that need to be made? And in new development, generally, we're, we're called upon to design a traditional building, you know, sort of in the spirit of Rosaria Candela, mm-hmm. you know, but we've had, we've had projects like a house in Ohio where we're designing an art gallery for some very avant-garde art. We're creating spaces that are all about cutting-edge art. Or when we worked, we did house for Jeff Koons and his family. So we were figuring out what's the appropriate place to have a, you know, 10 foot high granite statue of Popeye. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and we, I mean, going, I probably had more of that when I was starting out. We worked for Keith Haring. We did designs in the Warhol factory, the last Warhol factory, which almost none of which was, was built, um, except a kitchen, which 
Unfortunately, I couldn't put in my portfolio because they went and painted every door with a skull and crossbones and a warning saying, danger, 10,000 volts. So, <laughs> oh, my God, that's hilarious. <laughs> so, You're wild so, youth, Peter. <laughs> so, yes, I, I have had experiences. And, you know, now the, the challenging thing seems to be that, you know, the, the virtual stuff and the, the metaverse. And, and last December, someone asked me if I would design a cathedral in the metaverse. And I said, I'm not quite ready for that. <laughs> I don't even know what that would be. You know, I have enough trouble in this verse, never mind the metaverse. So, Katie, when you are approached about working on a project with Peter, when do you start? Does it start at the dinner table that night? How does the process go? Just to break it down a little. Well, I'll tell you the latest project that I was hired for, it was in another state, and uh -oh. I was I was working <laughs> I was working <laughs> with an architect um, who the client didn't like, I did not like. And I said, I have an architect for you. And so <laughs> I got that architect fired and Peter hired. And so this has had I was wondering if you've ever been so bad that you've had yes, to I was ditch that, somebody. I was that bad. I was that bad. No, he the architect was that bad. Oh, oh no, saying. I was yeah. that bad though too. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, sometimes you have to realize you've got to cut your losses, yeah. you know. <laughs> yes. So that happened. And then a few months later, the clients called me on the phone and said, Katie, we are firing you. And we're going to keep Peter, but wow. <laughs> bye. <laughs> well, that's hard. That's really brutal. Yeah. I know. That was an interesting dinner. I had an extra glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> and did you ever get a sense of why? I was going too fast. I would show up. I would fly in. I would have my FedEx boxes arrive. I had nine boxes, nine or 11 boxes filled with tile samples, wallpaper, fabric, flooring, paint, you name it. And I was moving so quickly and I moved too quickly for her. She wanted to spend more time and really she wanted to shop herself. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I could barely keep up with her. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. And what's interesting is this was this was in real life. It wasn't a Zoom thing where you'd hold up a towel and say, "How about this?" and move on. No, this was you actually brought all the materials to this client, but I she did. still felt that this was. I guess she was one of these indecisive. You know, not indecisive, but just. Yeah, no, she, I think she, she loved the process of it. She just wanted to spend more time mm -hmm. and she had a very good friend who was a designer. So she, she really wanted to go out and look at the fabrics and mm -hmm. do the shopping, which I don't do. I, right. I don't bring clients around to the D&D &D building. No. Right. No. Well, this is a, another problem that's come up on many podcasts is that, you know, with clients having access to all this stuff on Instagram, social media, websites and all that, that they feel that they either know what's out there and know what's best, which is they're usually wrong, but or they feel they have to be part of they want to see all the options, you know, which that could take the rest of your life, just picking out one fabric if you do look at all the options. So I guess it's it's a style thing as much as anything else. And it's a style of process as opposed to the style of the results. So how did you handle that, Peter? I mean, not just with Katie, but with the client. Was that not a, so much of a problem? Or do, how was it to work with the new designer who was brought in? Was there a little bit of resentment? You know, no, I mean, I... <laughs> I mean, I, I was. <laughs> You're a better I, man than I, Peter. Well, no, I was, I was lucky to have. It's a wonderful project. It's a really lovely family. And considering the way it happened, they handled it, I think, with very gracefully. Katie was they graceful did. and accepting yeah. about it. I mean, everyone's, yeah. 
everyone's friends. Yes. And Katie's yeah. so busy. And right. So, you know, there was no, I mean, yes, there was a bump. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but, but, but honestly, it's, it's fun. And people have, every client has a different way of approaching design and understanding right. architecture and interiors. And it's often, a very personal I, I, thing. Yeah. And I like to think about what, what they do day to day. An artist is very different than someone who's a lawyer and they're a doctor. I mean, they're, you have to look at what people's minds are formed by and what they're interested in. Right. And what they like and what they do when they travel and what their family. So it's everyone is different and it's never a dull moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, like I was saying, it's a very intimate relationship, knowing how people live day to day, what their dreams are. And then also, essentially, you're creating before you create what you're doing, you create chaos. You're building sites or a renovation of an apartment building. I mean, it's chaos and you're going mm-hmm. in and you're bring all this chaos into people's lives. So they have to really trust you and feel that they're in good hands. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people, like you were saying, Katie, some people need more hand-holding or more time or more attention than others. So it's inevitable, I suppose, that certain relationships don't work out. I mean, but they're also, I mean, I'd say chaos is not every, you know, we're incredibly... We do programs before we draw. We drop a list of every single room in the house to try to get mm-hmm. a, size, a sense of the size of the house and the cost of the house. We're very buttoned up about drawing everything and specifying everything. Even if someone else comes up with the idea, you know, we'll right. draw every single wall of the inside of a bathroom or a closet right. to show where things are. So, I mean, part of it is not being that architect who's going around showing up and pointing at things and asking for changes. That's just my personality. And I think Katie's office is also that way. Where, you know, everything is very, once the design is set, it's it's very sort of organized and, mm-hmm. you know, the processing is incredibly predictable, which I love. Right. And I, and I didn't mean to imply that you no. were creating chaos, but, but, you know, starting a project, whether it's a renovation or a new build, demolition, that that's what I was trying to talk about that. But no, clearly. You to, yeah, you have to be bold. I mean, you're digging right. a big, huge hole in someone's right. land or you're knocking down all their walls. Yes, you're right. That is chaos. So I think it's it's that matter of trust. And I think there has to be that trust between the designer and the architect as well. And that sort of reassurance that everybody's involved along the way and communication, which is so crucial. And, you know, I know that some designers feel that they're not kept informed by the architect's change orders go in, the client changes their mind, they're not involved and vice versa. Sometimes the architect, you know, like you were saying, I didn't know this room was going to be lacquered in teal or, mm-hmm. you know, and that changes how the light of the room and all of that stuff. And it's helpful to know all Mm -hmm. that stuff. Yeah. yeah. So when you first, like, let's say you're Peter, you're working on a project, not with Katie. And it's a designer you've not worked with before, only maybe once or twice before. How do you establish those lines of communication? We like to meet with the designer. And when I say we, I mean, my office has, there are designers other than me, Gregory Gilmartin is my of course, partner. Of course, staff. His, so, but also the people who are drawing day, all day, you know, I'm running around. So, so yes, we like to have meetings with the designer alone. And we like to be on the same page before we go to the client, right? So we don't just show up at a meeting and discover, you know, the designer doesn't see that we've had a new idea or they've had a new idea. We come together uh, and we, you know, we don't 
ever make the client sort of have to be the arbiter between, right, choose, you know, two, right. two ways of looking at something because I mean, that will never, you know, no one, no one wants to pay two people and then be, become the mediator. <laughs> right. Know? Oh, that's a very good yeah, point. Yeah. You know, so you have to be a united front. And, I mean, and, but, but yet you have to be able to say in front of the client, like, I prefer this, but I can also make that look beautiful. I mean, you, right. you know, it's not, you can't pretend right. that everything is in sync, but, but generally you, you have to add a layer of meetings, essentially. It's just, you just do. Right. And Katie, do you find the same? I mean, clearly you don't want to go in to the client and say, you know, this is what you we're going to do for you. You have no say in the matter. But do you meet with the architect? Yes. You know, in fact, yesterday I did because everyone's so busy when we're on site together. We asked the architect to come in to show him, to ask uh, about some details and to show him all of our schemes because there just sometimes there just isn't time when you're on site and you've got the contractor and you've got, you know, you've got 10 people in the room. So he came in and we really sat down and went through everything. So yes, I agree with Peter. It is really important to, on the sidelines, meet with the architect so everyone understands exactly what his vision is or her vision is and what mine is and how it all gels. And have you ever worked with an architect that you said afterwards, I will never work with this person again? Have you ever had that difficult a relationship? Well, that's a Um, tough question. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to name names. You can just describe the circumstances. (laughs) I I don't want you blackballing anybody. (laughs) No, I, I haven't worked with any jerky architects. I've worked with architects. I worked on a project a few years ago. And she just, she relied too much on me and, and I'm not an architect. And so, you know, the the beam going into the window that Peter was describing, mm-hmm. that kind of thing was happening. Uh. And, you know, that, I mean, you, you do your best and I try to give my advice when we're on site, but sometimes the air conditioning vent needs to go there and they're just going to do it that way because it's less expensive and they're going to have the beam going into the door opening. There's, I mean, it's just hideous, but what can you do? Yeah. Yeah. And Peter, what same tough question for you. Is there a designer that you've worked with that you'd say never again? Well, I mean, I've, you know, I did have a conversation once where I said, you know, no, I will not upholster it. I will not do details to upholster this entire child's room in pony skin with the, you know, hides of this, these poor ponies. Like, I will not, <laughs> with a disappearing door, like, no. You know, like, it's like, I'm not doing that. So, so probably that person never wants to, it, it sounds, it probably would have been beautiful, but what do I know? Maybe I lack imagination. Right, right. Well, sometimes it's a bridge too far. Right, right, yeah. So, so I want to get a sense from you guys What's dinner conversation like at your house? I mean, do you do you discuss work at home because you have kids, right? I mean, is that something that you'd fall into, or is it? Were you? Are, do you separate work hours from domestic time totally, or does it bleed into each other? I don't think we do. I mean, I tell people when I I encourage people to hire Katie. So the the benefit there is that you know we're the only designer and architect team who will actually turn over at two in the morning and said. 
Did you remember that the sconces have to be 66 <laughs> inches above the floor because that vanity's taller? You know, like that's <laughs> so that, it does. Okay, that, that, that's not going to happen if you have me and Jeffrey Bill Huber. <laughs> that's right, <laughs> <laughs> honey. You know, good point. Good point. So that's an advantage. Yeah, Katie. that's an advantage. Yes, uh, yes. So funny. And have you ever had a fight about a creative thing that then has? Come home and cause tension, shall we say, at home? God, it sounds so boring. I would love to be able to tell you a juicy story. Uh, I really would. I'm trying to think, Peter, do you have a juicy story? I, I can't think of anything that we fought over. That's why you're still married. Yeah, when we say this, people think we're lying. I know. You know? I think they do because everyone asks that question. <laughs> They're just hoping, you know, it's like, you know, people want to believe there's a lot of tension, tension and jealousy. Yeah, all of that. And we have all Um, sorts of good. This isn't about marital advice, but we do all sorts of other good things. Like we don't look at our credit card bills. We don't, you know, there are a lot of things we don't do. Yeah, that's true. Apparently people get into arguments about that we just Mm -hmm. don't do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Sometimes you have to know which battles to to fight, you know, (laughs) it's like. Leave the credit cards, leave the spending, all that stuff. So, okay, one last question. An architect and designer are coming together on a project. What is your one piece of advice for the duo? Peter, why don't we start with you? It sounds like an architect and a designer walk into walk a bar. Walk into a bar. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, I'll have red wine. Katie will have champagne. Um, so, <laughs> so I'd say before you even have the meeting, take the time to look at that person's work, right? Go oh, online, look at their website, get their book, ask a friend, what are they like? You're like, Do a little bit of background, you know, before you engage. Very good. Um, then just have a conversation that is not about the drawings, but about what the houses look like. And this sounds a little dangerous, but actually talk about the client together. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. reflect on who the person is or who the family is. And if you disagree, that's interesting, right? right. <laughs> what this is all about. Right. And sort of, oh. and, and just have some, don't behave like a rush New Yorker where you're just diving into business immediately. Yeah. Just get a feeling for it and ask questions about how they work. And then finally, this sounds terrible, but we call it a responsibilities matrix. So, well, it's just a piece of paper. Ultimately, a few weeks in, we like to assign like who's ultimately responsible for choosing tile and stuff. It doesn't mean who gets to say what's beautiful. It just means it takes the pressure off the schedule and the, all that. So. so it avoids like, oh, I thought you were doing that. You know, right, I right. thought that was your job. And yeah. so we make it clear, like, take a, as much of this as you want. We're not trying to be hogs. But let's not have awkwardness about it. Let's just sort of lay our cards on the table and say, I really want to choose the this or I want to do that. And then you know where you stand. That's very good advice. Yeah. And Katie, what about you? What's your advice? Um, I think for architects, it can be hard because oftentimes we're hired separately, the architect and the decorator. And the client is talking to me about such personal things that sometimes I feel like architects may think that the decorator won't be a team player because they have the client's ear on mm. on what you know, because, yeah. you know, drawings are, are sometimes really hard to read. And sometimes clients don't really see the nuanced, understand the, the nuances of an elevation or a plan. Right. So it's just making them feel comfortable and knowing that I'm going to rely on them and work closely with them. 
Yeah. Yeah, because you don't want your good relationship with the client become a point of like contention with the architect, you know, that because they feel you're getting the inside information or yes. you're yes. bad mouthing them or whatever. Yeah. People get paranoid. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you have to, mm-hmm. that's very good advice. Very good advice. Because it's a three way relationship. The architect and the designer work together, but you're also working with the client. It's, it's really like a triangle in that sense. Mm-hmm. And you all have to be trusting of each other and again, communicating like we were saying. Yeah, my, my client said it's like a family where the architect's like the uncle, sometimes the crazy uncle. The designer <laughs> could be, interior designer could be like the mother-in-law. No, he, he always cast us into different roles. <laughs> <laughs> like mother-in-law, really? I'm, yeah, it got a little, uh, uh, let's say. And I'm sure it's sometimes you think of the client as being the crazy child. Right. So, you know, there you right, go. Right, right. It's all a matter of perspective. Yeah, but you have to, uh, but I ask questions like, what does your day look like? You can't be presumptuous. Like I had a client who the designer immediately said, well, where does your sous chef hang out? Or where does your chef, you know, operate from? And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I just cooked my own hamburger last night. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, some of these clients, they have complicated lives. Right. So right. you really have a lot to accommodate. But I, I mean, this has been really so informative. And I think you've given a lot of food for thought for our listeners. And I want to thank my wonderful guests, Katie Ritter and Peter Panoyer. And I want to thank everyone for listening to the Cherish Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. You've been listening to the Cherish Podcast brought to you, of course, by Cherish which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hangar Studios in New York. Until next time.